Uh, this morning, as we step now into uh, a time of opening God's Word together, I'm going to invite you to stand as we do each week out of reverence for the reading and hearing of God's Word. And some have asked me over time, uh, why do we do that? And the re- reason we do that is respect. The reason we do that is we believe that all of Scripture is inherently given by God, breathed by Him, and so He is speaking uh, to us uh, literally, directly, right now. And so we stand uh, in reverence for His Word. We're going to read the first 24 verses uh, of chapter 8 of the book of Acts. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray for a moment and ask God's blessing uh, on his word. Father, we come now and we thank you for your word that is spoken. 
We thank you for your word that was propelled out of Jerusalem and went into Samaria and continued on and was extended to the outer reaches of the world. We thank you that that word is still being preached, and we thank you for the team that went over uh, to Morocco, and we pray that the word as it was uh, given would be received and that crooked hearts would be made straight and that uh, many in the Berber tribe and others who heard uh, this good news of Jesus by these Jesus followers would come and know him and they would seek out those who could lead them into a relationship with him. Father, we pray now that we would learn from you. Keep us from confusion in these texts, and let us see clearly what you would teach us. For you are a God of clarity and not of confusion. We praise you and give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Before I forget, and uh, I will forget if I don't do it right now, uh, Chris made mention of a student ministry event tonight. Um, that event has been canceled. Um, it didn't get around to all the proper people that were supposed to know that. And I thought I'd heard that, just confirmed it. So parents, there is no student event tonight. Uh, you can spend your own time together with your kids this evening. We'll have another one of those. So sorry for uh, the confusion on that. Now, to a place of no confusion, God's Word. I'm indebted as I come to this passage, which, uh, by the way, can be a, a quite confusing passage. It's a passage of Scripture that talks about uh, the Holy Spirit. It talks about the movement of the gospel as it is propelled out in the first century after Christ has ascended and given to the church the authority and the ministry of the Word to go out. And I'm indebted to uh, men Brian Vickers, to John Stott, to John Piper, men who have treated this uh, beautifully in their ministries. And a couple of things by way of introduction. A religious persecution, obviously, ha had begun and it exploded on the scene. We saw it last week with the death uh, of Stephen, that here was this beautiful man who loved Jesus and yet was killed and murdered for his faith. And we're introduced to a figure there, this young man named Saul. And Saul, who we know the rest of the story, uh, beginning in chapter 9 of Acts, Saul came to faith in Christ, radically changed, even his name was changed to Paul, who, if you are unfamiliar with the Scriptures, uh, wrote the majority of the New Testament. And so here was this man who is described now, it says, and Saul approved of, Philip's, or of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church of Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, except for the apostles. And it said that Saul was ravaging the church. What a word choice, that he was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them uh, to prison. Religious persecution exploded on the scene in Jerusalem. What had been maybe isolated events now became uh, the norm. And it said that this Saul, who was in hearty agreement 
uh, with it began the perpetrator of it. And one thing that we just need to note by way uh, of introduction, we're not going to flesh it out fully today, uh, is that persecution was God's means to rouse the church and to get her to fulfill the mission uh, of the gospel, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout into Judea and into Samaria and ultimately into the ends of the earth. Uh, there is an old phrase in the church, if you don't get Acts 1-8, oftentimes God will lead you to Acts 8-1. Acts 1-8 is the commission. It is the giving of the mission of go you, therefore, into all of the world, and that the Spirit will come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you saw the beginning movements of that in Jerusalem, and God was showing great fruit in that ministry in Jerusalem, but they hadn't moved out which is so much like the church, isn't it? We, we love to see God do some stuff, and then we get really comfortable. We see this, this movement of God move into an institutional way of a church, but instead of the church serving the movement, the church then becomes an establishment, and we serve the establishment. We have to keep the church going. We have to keep what we're doing going. And so we can't get back to the movement because the movement takes away resources from the church getting grand. And what had happened back in 1517 is the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church was such that it had lost the movements of the gospel. And so Martin Luther and many others stood up and they said, we have to get back to the movement. Well, God was getting the movement going again. And he did it through persecution. Persecution was not outside of, but was God's providential means by which he was propelling uh, the church. And it still is in many places. And for the American church, it would be something for us to consider. How might God use opposition to the establishment of the church? Because, by the way, if you haven't noticed, the church has lost its grand standing in American culture. We're not viewed well. Christianity is not viewed well. God's doing something to stir the church. And he's stirring the church not to circle the wagons around the establishment of the church and make sure we don't lose what we have. He's stirring the church so that we'll get back to doing what we should have been doing all along, which is sharing the good news of the gospel. Because you see, Philip went down to Samaria. And in Samaria, you know, some of you know, and some of you don't know, but I'll give you a quick brief. Uh, Samaritans and the Jewish people of Israel didn't like one another. They had been dispersed at different times through uh, persecution into uh, Babylon and, and others. And what had happened to the Samaritans in the first exodus, uh, in the first dispersion, had begun to intermarry. And then when they came back, there was intermarriage. Well, those who were propelled out of Jerusalem later on, they found themselves in, in Babylon going, but we never did. And so when they came back together in the country of Israel, Judea, and all of that area and region... There was a, a racial and social hatred between them. The Jews of pure birth would look at the half-bloods of Samaria and say, I think my dog is better than you. That even the apostles asked if they should bring down fire upon the people of Samaria because they didn't understand. And so there is this tension. And you see Stephen going there. Interesting as an aside, 
Stephen was a refugee. He was a refugee used by God in a place to do something powerful. He understood that he was cast out and was using uh, this platform to do something in the midst of persecution that Philip and all of those who were propelled out didn't lose the mission. They didn't sit around wringing their hands going, oh no, what are we going to do? We can't be in Jerusalem. What is this? What is this? God, what are you doing? How come you're treating me so poorly? All it says that Philip did was he preached the gospel. He knew that God had sent him out. And he may not have known why God sent him out, but you notice what he didn't spend any time doing. God, why did you send why did you do this? God, why did this happen to my friend Stephen? Stephen would have been his dear friend. And he would have grieved. He would have been upset by his death, and he would have been shaken. But notice what didn't happen. It didn't at all alter or in any way impede what Philip knew he was called to do. It says that he was proclaiming Christ to them, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. And later it says that Peter and James came, and they went and preached the gospel to all the villages. But what we need to do for just a moment is this is still, I'm setting a context for us, and we're going to talk about a few things, and you'll take some notes, and then at the end, I'm going to look at some warnings for us and then the applications from those warnings. What we need to do is discuss the confusion about the Holy Spirit in this passage. It's important to comment on it. Uh, However, it is not the purpose of Luke's writing these stories in here. This is not a systematic treatment uh, of the Holy Spirit, and whether it is a one-time baptism or a subsequent baptism later in life, that's not the purpose of this passage. Luke offers no explanation, but tells the story as though nothing is strange about the occurrence. He presents a descriptive event that is not meant to imply a pattern or prescribe a continual practice. It's important to think about it in that way. The passage indicates that the Samaritans believed, and then the Holy Spirit came to them in a second and subsequent event at the hands of Peter and John when they came from Jerusalem. We don't deny that at all. That's what the Scripture here teaches And as John Stott put it, we do not deny that the Samaritan experience did, in fact, take place in two stages. Nor have we any right to deny that having happened once, it could happen again, especially if the circumstances are similar. We must not infringe on the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in this place. But I would say that we need to look at a couple of points. A couple of questions. Were the Samaritans believers or were they not believers? Now, you can go and read, and you can study, and you can read John Calvin, and you can read uh, Matthew Henry, and you can read some of the others, and most commentators uh, would say that, yes, they were believers. They actually believed, and so that the Holy Spirit came to them, as it were, secondarily. All of it suggests that they were true believers. Therefore, many teachers conclude that this event in Acts uh, 8 is an illustration just like Pentecost, uh, of the establishment of the church moving out, 
that as the apostles went and the Holy Spirit went, that it was a movement of the Spirit in a very unique way within a very unique time. It is not given to us as normative, but outside of the norm. And what happens for the Christian church is we look at these things and we go, oh, this is how it always has to be. The problem is that they take every bit of it and go, everything has to be the same way. That it only comes through the laying on of hands. That it only comes from an apostolic uh, giving of the Spirit. Therefore, God still must have apostles in the church, and we should have apostles. And that's how all of this happens. We would say from our understanding, and from my understanding, that's not the case. There were clues that maybe they weren't believers. Some more modern writers, if you wanted to read Anthony Hookema and some others like James Dunn, they would say, yeah, they weren't believers, that they had some sort of assent, but they uh, weren't believers. But I don't find these uh, to be compelling arguments. The conclusion I would simply say is this, that amid some confusion about what we can say with a great deal of certainty concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit into, the Lord, into one's life, we can come to certainty. And the one thing for certain is this, that everywhere in the book of Acts, the coming of the Holy Spirit into the believer's life is once, and it's experiential. It's not inferential. I want you to get this. It's experiential. It's not inferential that it is something that we have been taught correctly, that if you've been taught correctly, and I hope that you have, that when you come into relationship with Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit in fullness. Correct? That's what we believe, that, that we say that. But for too many Christians, that is, John Piper would say that that is inferential at best. So tell me about the experience that you have had with the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, I believed when I was 13, and I know that I received the Holy Spirit. Well, can you show the working out of the Holy Spirit in your life in any way, shape, or form since that moment at 13 when you came to faith? Well, no, but I know that I have him because I was taught by my Presbyterian and Reformed pastor that when you receive Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. It's inferential. It's inferred. But let's look for just a moment that if you went to Acts 19.2 and you saw Paul, formerly Saul, who was now preaching and teaching, he asked this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, for many of us, if we were asked that question, we would give a very tepid response. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I guess... I mean, I confess to the Jesus, and, and I'm, I'm not sure that the Spirit's really at, at work in my life, but, but my pastor said that because I believed, I've got the Holy Spirit. But if you go and you look at the book of Acts for a moment as a whole, which we are doing and will continue to do, there are several ways, there are seven ways that the coming of the Holy Spirit is described in the life of an individual. The Holy Spirit, and I'll let you look these up on your own. I'll assume that you've got some time to do that this week. I'm not going to give you all of the places to look at. But it says that the Holy Spirit being given to the people as a gift. Chapter 8, 18, 532, 15:8, etc. It says that the Holy Spirit fell upon the people. Again, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 11. The Holy Spirit came upon the people. Acts 1, Acts 19. 
the Holy Spirit was poured out uh, on people. Chapter 2, chapter 10, people received uh, the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, in chapter 8, in chapter 10. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit, chapter 11, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, chapter 2 and chapter 9. And what you see with these different ways of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person, what you always see in every single situation is an experience. You see something happening within the life of the individual. At Pentecost, they were speaking in tongues and praising the mighty works of God, and the power to witness came upon them. In Samaria, there was so obvious an experience that Simon saw it, was amazed by it, and even gave some sort of belief behind it. In Caesarea, at the house of Cornelius, there was the speaking in tongues, there was the praising of God. In Ephesus, where Paul found the disciples of John the Baptist, there was, again, speaking in tongues, and there was prophesying. At Paul's conversion, there was extraordinary boldness and empowering, empowerment to witness. And in Acts 5.32, Luke says that God gave the Spirit to everyone who is obeying him. So obedience is a mark of his presence. Now, don't misunderstand what I just said there. I'm showing what the work of Acts. I'm not saying that, oh, well, if you get the Spirit, you have to speak in tongues or you have to prophesy. But what I am saying is this. When you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you receive the third person of the Trinity who takes up residence within your life, there will be some effect on your life. Yes? And for way, way too many in the church today, I love Jesus. Just don't want anybody to know about it. Oh, I love Jesus. Well, show me. Tell me a little bit. Tell me how you're experiencing uh, that in your life. H have you come to a place where you worship him more profoundly and that you see him drawing out of you uh, a praise? Oh, well, no, 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 I don't do that. I mean, I'm Presbyterian, for goodness gracious. We don't really worship. Can't have excitement and emotion involved in it, Bill. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I have the Holy Spirit in, in my life. Oh, so that's led you to be bolder in your witness to those who are around you, like in the book of Acts and all throughout the New Testament movement and around the world. So you, you've been more bold in, in meeting your neighbors and talking to them about Jesus and the places that you live, work, and play. So tell me about that. Well, I mean, gosh, religion's a private matter, Bill. I mean, I don't want them to, I don't, I, I want to get the invitation to play golf. I mean, I don't want them to know that I'm a believer. And all. Come on. Oh. Well, surely the Holy Spirit coming and taking up residency in your life has led to a deeper conviction of sin in your life, and so that there is a growing desire to die more and more to self and to live more and more to the beauty of who Christ is and to take very seriously the, uh, the things and the moral ethic and all the ethic of the Bible and begin to apply that, not perfectly, but to at least see that within your life uh, and within the dynamics of your social life, your private life, your sex life, your business life, all of your life, you're going to see some of that. Well, well, I mean, God really, I mean, he wants me to be happy. And, I mean, he doesn't, you know, oh, fascinating that for way too many people in the church, the power of the Holy Spirit in their life and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life is inferential at best. 
but not experiential. So to this point, whether Luke expects these kinds of effects to happen in one initiatory receiving or in a two-step process, that's not what he's trying to highlight here. What he would say is this. He expects that the receiving of the Holy Spirit to be a real, identifiable experience of the living God, not just a logical inference from a human act of the will. It does something within our lives. It affects us in some way. What I want us to look at now is saying, okay, the Holy Spirit, however it is, has taken up residency. It is working in the life of a believer. It's working through the ministry now of Philip in Samaria. He's preaching the gospel. People are seeing what's happening, and they're coming uh, to faith. And there is a growing, indeed, a deeper, fuller, richer experience of God uh, in their lives. And in comes this fascinating character. And this is who I want us to spend the last few minutes that we have looking at. Simon the Magician. What an interesting fellow. Simon the Magician. But there was this man named Simon who'd previously practiced magic in the city. He was, he was in the occult. He was in the dark arts. He understood the power. And he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And then when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And after seeing signs and great miracles, he himself was amazed. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit as well. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you... Uh, that." I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, you pray for me. You pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. There's a couple of warnings that I want us to take from the story of Simon. Now, I'm glad to go with you at another time, and we can talk about the Holy Spirit and the movement of the Spirit and the life and what that looks like. And there's, I can point you to some excellent writers uh, who have done a much better treatment of it than I could do. But that's not what we're going to spend the time today. That's not why Luke was writing about this movement of the Spirit uh, in chapter 8 to Theophilus, so that Theophilus would believe that Jesus was who he said that he was, and that the church was not just a sect uh, of Judaism, but was the culmination of Judaism, and that Christ was the true Messiah, and that this was the true uh, religion and the true truth. And so we're going to look at four warnings. And as we introduce uh, these warnings, I want to give you an illustration. I want to give you an illustration because what Simon saw was a sign. He saw power, legitimate power. 
But that power was a sign. And the illustration that I, I first illustration, it's going to be a, a similar illustration turned just a little differently. Think of a parent, think of a mother with their toddler. For some of you, that's not hard to think about. Or a grandparent with your toddler grandchild. And that you've given this beautifully wrapped package. I mean, it's the best wrapping paper ever. It is glittery. It is awesome. It's got the best images on it. And on top is this massive ribbon. And you give it to the toddler. And what does the toddler do? They just rip open the paper. And they've got the bow. And you're waiting for them to open the box. But instead, they sit and they play with the paper. And they take the bow and they put the bow on their head. And they're like, this is great paper. Thank you for the paper and the bow. Or you're a mother and you're sitting with your child. John Piper uses this great illustration. And you're at the breakfast table. And you're having your time with your child. And then a beautiful bird comes and lands on the windowsill. And you go, look, sweetie. Look at the bird. And the child goes. And starts to mimic pointing the finger. The child is fascinated by the sign, but never sees the bird. The child points a finger around, but never captures the object of the sign. The object of the wrapping paper and the bow was what was inside the box. The object of the pointing of the finger is the bird. This is what happened to Simon. Simon saw the signs that pointed to Christ. He saw the signs that validated the power and the, the validity of, of the gospel message. But yet he was caught with the signs. He was caught with the power. He was caught with all of that. And he never looked to Jesus as the true object. If that's not a problem within the church today, I don't know what is. And if that's not a problem with the spread of the gospel around the world, I don't know what is. That chapter 8 is so important to our understanding of the beauty of the gospel that we need to sit here for a few minutes. And here's warning number one. And by the way, is anybody else freezing? <laughs> wow. Okay. Just wanted to make sure it's not just me. I'm going to be up here going, I'm going to have to have gloves for the next service. Um, Warning number one, wear a coat to church at Hilton Head Presbyterian. Now, warning number one, there is a faith that is not a saving faith. There is a faith that is not a saving faith. I interpret verses 18 to 24 that we just read to mean that Simon was not truly converted, that he has no part or lot in the matter of Christianity, that his heart is not right with God, that he still needs to repent. That's what Peter was saying uh, to him, that he says was still enslaved to bitterness and gall of heart, uh, that it says of his heart uh, that his heart was, was still not right. It's interesting if you were to go and read Irenaeus and Jerome and Justin the Martyr, uh, who were early church fathers, they would affirm this, that the early church tradition in the centuries following said that Simon went on to become a heretic and not a true Christian. But yet Luke says that even Simon believed. The point to draw out of this is there is a faith 
there is a belief that isn't true salvation. It's the same kind of non-saving faith that you look at in Luke chapter 8, verse 13, when he gives the story of the four soils and the seed falling, and the ones on the rock that are those who, that when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root, and they believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, they fall away. The faith is not a real and saving faith. So I would conclude from this that Luke's point here in chapter 8 is that Simon's faith, his believing, is not a saving faith, but a false faith, a dead, barren, empty faith, a dangerous faith, because he thought that he believed in that. So that's warning number one. Warning number two, make sure that you're focused on the true object of faith and not just on the signs. Make sure that you're focused on the true object of faith, Christ himself, and not on the signs, not on the things that point to him. Many people want what Jesus can do for them, but they don't really want Jesus. I need Jesus to come and salvage my marriage. I need Jesus to, to sober me up. I need Jesus to straighten up this mess that I've gotten into. I need Jesus to come and give me peace. I need Jesus to do this. Now, I don't really want Jesus. I just want the benefits of Jesus. I want all the signs of his power. I want all the things, all the accoutrements of it, but I don't really want him. Simon's faith was focused on the power, the wonders, and the signs, so much so, he offered to buy it. Do you take American Express? Can, can I get a little bit of that power? Because that's incredible power. He did not question the validity of the power of Jesus. He believed that Jesus was who he said he was, a powerful person. But he didn't want Jesus. He just wanted what Jesus could give him. He didn't doubt that there was real power there. It was legitimate to him, so legitimate that he was willing to leave, as it were, his own magic and follow this new powerful magic that he found. Philip had stretched out his finger and was pointing to Jesus. And Simon kept looking at the finger. He kept saying, how can I do that and have that but not have him? Warning number one, there's a faith that is not a saving faith. Warning number two, make sure that you're focused on the true object of faith, Christ. Warning number three, don't just be amazed by Jesus. Be in love with Jesus. Interesting play on words here by Luke. He uses the word amaze three times. Simon used to amaze the people. The people were amazed by Simon. And then when Simon saw what Jesus could do through the preaching, teaching, and the ministry of Philip, says that he himself was amazed. The amazer became amazed in the middle. In other words, what Simon had been producing in the Samaritans by his sorcery, well, he was now experiencing in himself. There is an amazement to the supernatural power of God in the world. There's an amazement to what you see Jesus doing in the lives of other people. But make sure that your amazement leads to a deep and a profound love. Because, friends, here's the warning. Amazement is not love for Jesus. It's just amazement. It's just standing and going, wow, man, that's amazing. I 
think that's awesome. But I don't really want him. I just want the amazement of it. I just want the experience of it. I want the Jesus bumps. Man, did you feel that? Woo! Jesus was all over me. Yeah, but did it affect your life at all? Well, no. Did it make you a more loving person? No. But man, did you feel it? Did you see that? That was cool. I'll tell you a quick story. I wanted the amazement of Christ in my life. Well, I'm not going to tell you the story. There's plenty of stories in my life. But you see it of going, man, I want that. It ties so much into the backside of what we just said of the object has to be Christ. I love to see the amazement and the experiential, but to really want Christ. So warning number three, don't just be amazed, be in love. Because amazement, when you're dating, that's amazement, right? Oh, she's so beautiful. Oh, he is so hunky. <laughs> Whew. He's just something. This is great. I always ask couples who sit in my office, tell me why of all the possible people that the scriptures describe who you could, you could marry, and there's plenty of them, why this person? Oh, they're just so sweet. And then in a few years when that same couple is sitting on my couch and going, he smells. <laughs> he doesn't get up when I come in the room anymore like he used to. I have to open the door all the time. He used to open the door. She just nags and complains all the time. You know, she has a particular way of doing everything. She doesn't respect me. He doesn't like me. All of a sudden, you realize that the amazement has worn off a bit. And love, it's a commitment that is incredibly costly. So if you're here and you're considering Jesus Christ, I want you to be amazed by him. I want you to see his splendor and his wonder and go, wow, this is awesome. But I don't want to undersell this to say, hey, come to Jesus and think that it's going to be easy. It is costly and it is hard because it is a marriage and it is a dying to self. It is a giving up of your rights for that of somebody else. And it is challenging. Amazement will never lead you to a cross. Amazement will never lead you to a cross. But love and commitment to Christ will. Warning number four, we'll wrap up. Get to the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is your heart. Get to the heart of the problem, and the heart of the problem happens to be your heart. Verse 21, this is what Peter said. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not, literally it says, straight before God. You've got a crooked heart. You've got a, a messed up heart. You haven't dealt with your heart. At the root of Simon's false faith, false faith was a heart problem. And that is the way it is with every single one of us. His heart wasn't straight before God. It was crooked. His heart needed to be changed. He was not a simple one-year-old sitting on his mother's lap, staring innocently at her pointing finger instead of out of the window at the beauty of the bird. He was a man with a crooked heart who was willfully suppressing the knowledge and the truth of God. 
whose spirit cannot be bought. And he fixed his eyes on Philip's finger instead of the object. Friends, God is coming in and he wants to do a work in your heart. If you're a Christian, he's doing a work in your heart. If you're a non-Christian and you're here, you're listening in this morning, he's doing something in your heart. That's where you get, not just on the issues out there, but deep, deep down. I've been having more and more conversations with people who claim to be followers of Jesus and their life shows absolutely little or none of it. And they're not bothered at all. And when I ask the question, does this bother you at all? Oh, no, not really. Oh, friends, be careful. There is a heart issue. The heart is deceitful above all else. We all have our blind spots. But the beauty is when they're brought to us, we would be humble and repent of them. So here's the conclusion. Those are your warnings. Here's the conclusion. Are you dealing with your heart before God? first and foremost, and looking to Christ as the object of your faith. How many of you are in a relationship with somebody else? That'd be every hand, by the way. It doesn't mean you're engaged or married or dating. You're in a relationship with somebody else. Here's the problem in that relationship, because every one of them has, has a problem, right? You're the problem. Not the other person. Your heart's the problem. And if you start with their heart, and by the way, husbands, do not look at your wives and say, see, he said you're the problem. <laughs> that is not what I'm saying. But you're the problem. And you have to go to the Lord, Lord, show me my heart. Show me my heart. And what is, what is in there? And then when you look at your heart, friends, you have to look at something else because the heart will crush you. You have to look at a cross. Look at Christ, the object of your faith, and what he's done for you. On this Reformation Day, oh, what a day to celebrate. For salvation is by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, based upon Scripture alone, and all of life is lived to the glory of God alone. Sole Dea Gloria. So look in your heart. And then here's the last one, and this isn't a very nice way to leave you. We're going to sing a couple of songs to bring you out of this one. But I wouldn't be true. I'm going to ask you the question that Paul asked. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit in your life? Now you can say, yes, I've seen the Holy Spirit in obedience at work in my life, subduing sin and inclining me to acts of love. Yes, I've seen the spirit of praise in my life, filling my heart and mouth with worship to Jesus and God. Yes, I've seen the spirit of courage work in my overcoming of fear and giving me a will to risk things. But if you can't answer that question this morning, if it stumps you, then I'm going to invite you to pray with me along these lines. Maybe you haven't believed at all and you need to come like Simon, and pray to receive Christ and his Spirit. Maybe it's just that there's an impediment within your life and that the Spirit is there, but it, there's an impediment of sin and there's something that God needs to remove so that the Spirit can work its way out in your life. Or maybe it's you're just too hard on yourself and you just don't, can't see the work of the Spirit that he's doing in your life. So I'm going to invite the team to come up 
and I'm going to pray for us. And you may be needing to pray along with me in this way today. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word, and it is so challenging. It rouses us from sleep. It forces us not to just look at things in some systematic theological way that we can we can parse and we can nuance and we can argue and we can say, well, we don't believe that or we believe this. Father, it's important to know what we believe. But Father, would it always drive us to taking what it is that we say we believe and applying it to our lives? And for, for some who are here this morning who when asked, have you received the Spirit of Christ, would say no. I pray that they would turn even now, and they would believe, and they would commit their lives in true belief to you, not just on what you can do, but to you, Christ. So, Father, would you receive them today? For others, where there's something in their lives that's just blocking, that's keeping them, there's a sin pattern, there's, uh, there's a, a blind spot, there's a misunderstanding or a wrong belief, would you remove it so that the Spirit would flow fully in their lives? And for others, Father, would you give them a kindness towards their own story? And would they see where the Spirit is working? But Father, send your Spirit afresh and anew today that we would be awakened, that we would see you and experience you in our lives today and every day, and that the world that's looking would see him in us. To you be all glory and honor. Amen.